Recently, I got caught up all in the news uh, of Beth Moore's fight against sexism in the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, it was an interesting time um, because uh, Beth Moore, if you don't know her, she's one of my favorite preachers and she's a teacher and she also travels, travels all around the world uh, proclaiming the good news. Uh, she has been somebody that I have followed for a long time. Aside from being such a gifted speaker, I love um, her for her Twitter feed. She's funny, and I wanted to share some of her funny tweets with you, but she writes in Southern, so I can't really like read them with my accent. Oftentimes, she gets in a lot of trouble because of some of the tweets that have more of an edge, um, like this one, for example. She said, relentless overemphasis on biblical manhood and womanhood the constant pounding will inevitably cause us to attend more carefully to, ca to carrying our genders than our crosses. Whether you're male or female, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Jesus. It was definitely risky for her to speak out against the sexism and the sexual abuse that she had witnessed in the, in the uh, Southern Baptist Church. Uh, but, you know, she decided to speak out against it, and I respect her for that. Actually, while this conflict was going on, I started to feel, well, I have been a female Hispanic pastor for 20 years. I have stories to share. I have stuff to talk about. I've gone through some seriously bad stuff. But then God reminded me that he knows all about that stuff, and that he knows the pain, and that he um, mourns it more than I mourn it. At the same time, God reminded me that he is doing something new. He is building churches like the Story Houston all around the world where both our sons and our daughters can serve in any capacity in the church, from preaching to teaching to leading teams to leading groups. And it is impactful to see the difference that this boys, girls, women, and men are making in the lives of others. And it is impactful to see the ways in which God is using them to proclaim the gospel and to change the lives of others. So today, I decided that instead of talking about all the ways in which the church has gotten it wrong, I want to talk about all the things that Jesus came to make right. So I want us to focus our attention to Mark chapter 13, verse 10 to 17. You can follow along on your Bibles and you can grab your study guides or follow up on the screen. This is what it says. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then Jesus put his hand on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! 
Doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it to give it water? Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath from, her, from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. Can you imagine what life must have felt for this woman? Pastor Eric talked about what it was like to be a woman in the first century last week. Women had barely no rights outside of their families or marriages. And this woman, on top of living in that kind of culture, she was afflicted by a form of arthritis of the spine that had left her crippled. She could not look up. So I was wondering, have you ever watched somebody struggle with this kind of disability? Or have you ever watched somebody struggle with in deep poverty? How did that make you feel? Did it make you feel uncomfortable? Did it make you feel heartbroken, desperate? That is the life that this woman had. I cannot imagine how it must have felt for this woman to only be able to see the perimeter around her own feet because on top of being sick, she had to wear these heavy garments that women were required to wear. So it's likely she could only see around her feet. And people back then who had disabilities like her were outcasts. Nobody wanted to get down to her level to ask her how she was doing or to hold a, hold a conversation. Basically, she was a lost case for them. So why would this woman, in her condition, choose to make that treacherous trip to the synagogue, walking with her bent-over body all the way to the synagogue, I assure you that it was not for social reasons. She was not going there to hang out with her small group or with other people. She was going there to be with God. She was going there to pray. She was going there to worship. She was going there to find solace in God. And no one paid attention to her as she walked all the way to the women's side of the synagogue. I imagine she was ignored. But that day... That day Jesus was there. And Jesus had this extraordinary ability to see invisible people like this woman. The other question that came to my mind, why would Jesus choose to heal the woman inside the synagogue on the Sabbath? Jesus could have gone to the woman's house he could have gone to somebody else's house. He could have healed her outside in the street in front of everybody else. But he chose to go inside the synagogue. And Jesus, he, he's a lot of things, but he's very intentional. This was a calculated risk that Jesus took. He went inside the synagogue to heal her. Now, I like taking risks. I married Pastor Eric. But what Jesus did sounds crazy to me. I would not dare go and do anything that the Pharisees thought was wrong on the Sabbath inside a synagogue. But 
Jesus was up to something. Jesus wanted to teach us a lesson that is bigger than the miracle he performed. Jesus wanted to teach us a lesson that involved the woman, the religious leaders, and especially his disciples that were there with him. Jesus wanted to teach us a lesson about the dangers of pride. And he does it with 54 words. I've been a pastor for 20 years, like I said earlier, but, and I've heard all kinds of stories. People have come to share about their struggles. I have met and heard about everything, almost everything. The one thing I am yet to hear from somebody when we're meeting, having coffee or lunch, is Pastor Dio, I am struggling with pride. I am yet to hear somebody come and say, I feel that pride is destroying my life. Here's the problem with pride. And I like what this author has to say. She says, when it comes to diagnosing our hearts, those of us who have the disease of pride have a challenging time identifying our sickness. Pride will paint even our ugliness in sin as beautiful and commendable. And with a lot of love and respect, I'm going to tell you, if you're here today and you think that you don't have a problem with pride, it's likely that you have a problem with pride. Not funny. <laughs> pride is a huge issue for us in our society today. It is, I believe, the root of a lot of our unhappiness and loneliness. And humility is not something that's rewarded in our society. And that's the antidote to pride. In our society, strength and beauty are highly rewarded. And when we don't feel strong and when we don't feel beautiful, our pride kicks into high gear and we go to great lengths to um, cover it up. We're so concerned about appearance over substance that entire companies are popping up to help us cover up what's really happening inside. So I want to introduce you today to lifefaker.com. This is their motto. It's really scary stuff here. The world's first online faking service lets users buy ready-made photo packages. Life isn't perfect. Your profile should be. Instead of going to the trouble of living a perfect life, now you can just get the photos instead. Depressing? Yes. It seems, it seems so harmless to just project an image that everything is okay when we're really not okay. Yet, the Bible is very clear that God does not care about our appearances. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, this is what God tells us. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is truly more concerned about what we have on the inside. God is concerned about us being humble enough to have the ability to recognize that we are sinners in need of redemption. And pride is what keeps us away from that recognition. This is what Jonathan Edwards, a great American revivalist and preacher, said about pride. He said that proud people find fault in everyone else but themselves. He said that proud people harshly critique others and refuse to offer kindness 
or sympathy. He said that proud people are more worried about appearances than about what's in their hearts. He said proud people hunger for attention and affirmation. They're defensive, resentful, and refuse to forgive. They have no confidence in God. They trust in their own ability to make things happen. They prefer the strong and they avoid the weak because for them, the weak have nothing to offer them. Now, I want you to be honest with me. Don't raise your hands. Do any of these describe you? In a bad day, do most of this describe you? What's depressing is that a lot of these descriptions fit the profile of the Pharisees in Jesus' days. They become enraged at Jesus for healing this woman on the Sabbath. They're mad at him. They actually have the audacity to tell the woman that she should come back to get healed tomorrow. They don't understand just how hard it was for that woman to get there that day. They have the audacity to tell her, come back tomorrow because today is a Sabbath. And Jesus berates them. He, t- he calls them hypocrites. He, he tells them that, that they are creating more harm than good. So even after Jesus calls them hypocrites, after Jesus humiliates them in front of everybody, they still have no ability to see that they are in need of redemption. I think that Jesus intentionally chose to go to the first century version of lifefaker.com with all of the religious people went to the synagogue to look perfect in front of each other. And Jesus is right there with them, looking at them, and he's trying to tell them that he can see what's inside and it's not looking good. The truth is that Jesus can do anything for us, but he can't save us against our will. The woman is bent over, but she's humble. But the Pharisees are proud and their pride is making them so crooked. So to humble them even more, Jesus takes another step. He goes even riskier than earlier. in, in that room full of proud sons of Abraham, he decides to call this woman a daughter of Abraham. That was completely unheard of. What he's trying to do is to try to raise that woman to the level of the Pharisees and to teach the Pharisees that he cares about this woman's bent over lives just as much as he cares about their self-righteous lives. That he wants to save her just as much as he wants to save them. He tells them that this woman has suffered from an oppression from Satan for 18 years. But he's teaching them that this is not a demon possession. There's no signs of demon possession. This woman is not throwing herself on the floor. She's not foaming at the mouth. There's no symptoms of that. What Jesus is saying that her condition is somewhat tied to the curse of sin. This woman is suffering the consequences that we all suffer in this world because of its fallenness, the pain, the suffering. But regardless of her condition, even though this condition limits this woman's vision, 
She's still able to see her need for redemption. Yet the Pharisees are right there standing in front of Jesus, looking at Jesus in the eye, and they still refuse to see their Savior. I have been consumed by that kind of pride before, and that's the truth. And it took me a lot of practice to come and own up to that because, you know, I'm one of those people who was raised in the church all her life. From the time I was a baby, I was already able to sit down through two and a half hour services. I was a prodigy in some ways, religious <laughs> prodigy. I actually grew up in church. I always tried to do everything right. So it's hard for me to own up, especially in a public setting, about things that I'm doing wrong, about things where, my, where, where I've made the wrong choices. But the reality is that, I have, that there was one time in my life when I almost allowed pride to destroy me completely. I arrived to this country when I was 16 years old. At 18, during my first day of college, I met this very dynamic young man called Eric Huffman, my husband. I'm one of those people who at age 14, I felt that God was calling me to be a church planter and I decided it would be so much easier if I just married a pastor because then we don't have to worry about one doing one thing and the other doing another. We could just be in this together. It was a match made in heaven. I heard Eric preach for the first time when we were 18 and I decided this is definitely the guy for me. He made us all cry and I really like how he was. And we, we had this rebellious streak about us. So when we were touring the churches around our, our town, in the town of our college, we decided that there was no church that met our standards. So we were like, we're starting our own church. We started two campus ministries. Everything was going fine, exactly as I wanted it to go. Until one day, this man that I fell in love with after four years of us being together came and told me that he had completely lost his faith, that he did not believe in God. At that point, I thought, oh, this is, this is just a phase. Go eat something. It's going to be fine. <laughs> but then it wasn't going away. And that's when... Pride kicked into high gear for me, and I became so self-righteous. I started thinking, well, I'm not going to let this guy ruin my life. He lied to me. Why is he in this phase of disbelief? I don't understand it. I started viewing Eric as weak because I thought, he's letting the enemy attack him in this way. Maybe this is not going to work out. It got so bad that for an entire year, I was very much absent from our marriage. And there was one point in which I thought the enemy convinced me that I could do so much better, that I should just quit. We did not have kids at that point in time, so we started talking about divorce. That was the lowest point for sure. And that day, I decided to grab my stuff, go to church, and go and pray. I felt that Eric needed a lot of prayer. So I went to the front row of the church, and I'm like crying to God, saying, God, 
Can you just fix Eric? There's something really wrong with him. And in true God fashion, God told me, Eric's just fine. You are the one that needs a lot of fixing. And it was true. God revealed to me how I had become arrogant, judgmental, self-absorbed. I blamed Eric for ruining my dreams. I blamed Eric for lying to me, even though the one who was lying to herself was myself. I blamed him for everything. And after I repented that day, I started a whole new journey. I had to learn how to love again. I had to learn how to forgive. I had to learn how to love sacrificially. I had to learn to let go and to let God be in control. And that was very hard because that's what pride convinces you about the most, that you are in control. But God is in control. God asked me to start giving him all of my burdens, all of my dreams, because he could do something so much better than what I wanted. And I let go. So we went through eight years of Eric being in this place. And I learned how to love him through all of those years. Would I have it any other way? No. Looking back, I am grateful for that time. Because what that time did for us is teach us how to resist pride. How to resist the urge to do something, to control and instead to put it in God's hands and to see what God can do with that. Eric is one of the strongest people in his faith I know now. He actually carries us through his faith. But it's because he went through that very painful journey, and I'm thankful for that. What I want to remind us today, most of, more than anything, most of all, is that for God, it doesn't matter how many years you've been going to church, how much you give, what you're leading. God doesn't care if you're leading a team, a group. What God cares about is about you being humble enough to recognize that you are a sinner in great need of redemption. God doesn't want a church full of Pharisees telling him what to do. God wants a church that's full of people who, like that bent over woman that make that painful trip to that synagogue to look for their savior. When we're here, what God wants is our hearts to be broken down enough to realize just how much we need him, how much we need the savior that he sent to this world, how much we need Jesus. He wants us in our, on our knees. He wants us humble. He wants a contrite heart. He wants us to be ready to be transformed by him. I want to leave us today with one passage that helps me a lot every single day. When I pray, I say this passage. Psalm 51, 17, it says, The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart. Oh God, let's go to God in prayer. God, I am so grateful for 
your word, for the challenge that you give us to surrender everything and to come back to you because only in you can find what we're missing and nobody else and nothing else can satisfy. You're the fountain that we're hoping to drink from, the only one that satisfies. I pray today that you help us to forget about looking good, sounding good. Help us to seek you and to invite you to our hearts, especially if we've left you behind. Please let today be the day when you are at the center of our lives again. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your love, for your presence, for the redemption that you brought to this world. In your name we pray. Amen.